0: This is the 45 One Podcast, Episode 4, The Life of a Biology PhD Student.
1: Hey Tony, how's it going? I'm doing really well, how about you? I'm chilling, man. I just got a brand new PC, so I'm excited to be working with it. Um, for the listeners, I just want to point out we're using a slightly different software. So hopefully, the audio doesn't sound all terrible and the settings we didn't mess up. But it took us like three hours to set it up. So, this is the first run. So, God help us.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to use this new software. It's Adobe Edition. Yeah. Before it was Audacity, so uh, we're just doing some experimentation now, and we'll figure out what works best for us.
1: Yeah, we'll see if we need to go back or not, but hopefully not, um, since this is a premium podcasting software, so whatever that means. It's got to be good. Yeah, hopefully.
0: So today, we have an interesting episode for you guys. It is going to be an episode where I interview Mark about his career path up until this point and his plans for the future as a biology PhD student so I am I have a bunch of questions ready for Mark that I'm going to ask him today and we'll see what he has to say about that
1: yep um, I'm looking forward to it this is going to be an interesting one I mean we've already done a podcast about you so that's only right that we do one about me too
0: yep so it's your turn before we get into the interview part of the podcast I just want to reintroduce Mark here So Mark's been a student for the last 22 years of his life. Does that sound about right, Mark?
1: Yeah, it's about right. I think so.
0: (laughs) So Mark has attended high school in Danbury, Connecticut. He then went on to Loyola University where he got his bachelor's degree in biology. He then went to Towson for his master's degree where he also did a biology degree with a focus on immunology and finally, he is currently studying at Georgetown, working towards his Ph.D. in biology with a focus on immunology.
1: It's kind of funny the way you just said that is how we introduce people for um, like interviews and stuff like that. So I appreciate it. It's a good summary. It's for
0: like, for like presentations. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good summary of where you've been. Yeah, but it's too
1: formal. Too formal? It's too formal for this, for this me- source of media.
0: Well... That's okay. We'll go more informal now. And I want to start off by asking you way back. I want you to think way back. What is your first memory of um, wanting to be a scientist or wanting to do research? Is there something like that? Um, so I think that the f- I never really had, a, I guess,
1: a dream of being a scientist, if that makes any sense. Uh, I think I always wanted to go into med school so in high school everyone was like oh what do you want to do want to go to med school got to Loyola, found out that i did not want to go to med school because i just don't want to deal with people
0: was that the Uh, only reason
1: that's pretty much the only reason like i i probably had the grades to get in to like a somewhat decent med school but i just didn't want to like again deal with people and from what i understand doctors today don't like dealing with people anyway so maybe would have been a good fit but but in any case um Ended up at Loyola and from met with a bunch of professors and said that didn't really want to go to med school, so what were some other alternatives, and kind of settled on just going into research, which is a, a different type of avenue. So um I started working in a couple labs there at Loyola. Um, one was a microbiology lab. But for those who don't know what microbiology is, it's the study of microorganisms, hence the micro part. Uh, and also dabbled in some immunology, and for those that don't know what immunology is, it's the study of the human immune system, or an immune, uh, an immune system. So that was kind of senior year, and then after that, I just got interested in it, so I just continued along that path. But what I mean, what I really like about science is that it's there's always more questions that need to be answered. You know, there's no finite kind of endpoint until well, death is, but But you're trying to figure out stuff that just is very complex and trying to understand why the things work for humans or animals or or in life and why they're like that. So,
0: Yeah, I I definitely see what you're saying. It's like kind of uncharted territory that you're researching that nobody else has researched potentially and making, I guess, breakthroughs. Have, Have you done anything like that? Have you did any type of research that nobody has done before that you discovered something so i mean part of your
1: dissertation project is trying to actually do something what's called novel in the field so um well your dissertation has to be novel like it has to be something that no one's done before and the goal of your dissertation is to be novel but also push the field forward um so yes i'm working on that now but i think the most i want to say the most impactful project that i've worked on and it's not It's not like a groundbreaking thing, but it's, it's also kind of one of the most interesting projects is the, like the project I worked on my senior year at Loyola. So for that, um, I worked in, it was, it was in a, I guess I was in between labs, So I had two different research advisors I was, I was dealing with. One was a forensic entomologist in which means that he studied bugs uh, for forensic purposes. So Mm. like at crime scenes, bugs love dead bodies. And so you can actually use the bugs found on dead bodies to identify when the body, when that person died, or, or how that person died, potentially. Wow. Um. Yeah. And so, but it was between a forensic entomology lab and also a microbiology slash immunology lab, and basically the goal for that project was to identify the difference between fly vomit and blood stain. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a very big problem within the um forensic, uh, forensic uh. Uh, field, field, yeah. So like a crime, scene, yeah, forensic, like crime scene investigators, okay. like CSI. Like right, seriously, right. so the biological process what happens is that flies. If you have a dead body, the blood's just pooling there, and basically flies love decaying material. So they they love blood too. Um, that's why you whenever you see roadkill, there's always flies around it because they like eating it. And what they'll actually do is they'll lay their eggs there. But that's mm-hmm. besides the fact. Um, what they do is they will actually ingest the blood found pooled around bodies or if it's blood splatter um, and the way flies eat is they will actually take up a meal and then land somewhere else like a wall or, or a painting or something they'll vomit up their meal they'll add their digestive enzymes to actually digest that that blood meal and then they eat it back up OK, yeah. And so this is very problematic at crime scenes because you can't identify the difference between blood and fly vomit. And so if you're a CSI person, a crime scene investigator, and you're looking and trying to do a blood splatter analysis, you can't differentiate the t- difference between blood and then fly vomit. And so that really, really, really messes up your analysis. So instead of like a slashing pattern or a stabbing pattern, you can get something radically different. Because look, they look almost identical. It's, I'm not kidding you.
0: So, so the CSI guy is going to walk around the room, look on the walls and the floors and the ceilings for fly vomit? Well, they and... look
1: for blood, spits, like blood stain. Like they look for like a blood spatter. Like imagine if you got your throat slashed. Yeah, yeah. Like you're, that blood is going to go literally all over the place. Okay. And so fly vomit, since it looks almost identical to blood... Um, is going to misinterpret that that csi person is going to misinterpret that 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 blood oh analysis. if he happens
0: to collect that yeah oh, okay. okay and so
1: for that project going back to it we were actually trying to differentiate between those two and so the way you were able to do that is to or the, or the easiest way to do that is to actually detect the fly digestive enzymes that are in the fly vomit and so what i was working on was trying to develop kind of a um, we call them antibodies, um, and you've probably heard about them before, but it's just trying to figure out a way to, to detect those fly dig- digestive enzymes. And so if you perhaps sprayed some sort of spray on your blood splatter, the fly digestive enzymes would pop up as a different color. And so that would eliminate that kind of variability in the asset in the, in the, in the kind of like the analysis.
0: Oh, okay. So in the end you were able to make the distinction between the fly vomit and the blood.
1: Um, yeah, so we were able to be able to detect the fly digestive enzymes, um, mm-hmm. and it actually was published in the forensic of the journal Forensic Sciences.
0: really? yeah, that's really cool.
1: so um, and it's apparently from what I understand, this is probably six years removed now. Um, it's gotten a lot of traction within the forensic community, so it's good
0: that's that is really cool, and I'm sure that had something to do with you sticking to the biology field, like the motivation that you got from getting a published article in a reputable source like that
1: yeah i mean the main thing is that it was super interesting right and so science i think if you are planning going to the science field like it's a very intimidating field because a there's millions of people doing well yeah probably millions of people doing it yeah there's millions of people within the whole entire science community and there's millions of different questions to be answered but all those are super hard And so you want to find uh, a kind of a research project that's A, interesting, B, novel, and C, something that's
0: going to push you forward. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like if you're going to go that career path, it's not a job where you're going to go to work every day and just kind of blend in and go through the motions. You have to be super motivated yeah. to do something like that. Okay, so yeah, I wanna take a step back here for me kinda personally, but I'm sure a lot of our audience who are not biology majors or science people, um, this will be helpful portion of the podcast episode. I-, I want you to do your best job at giving us like a crash course. Let's start with biology, then move into microbiology. And then we also mentioned immunology before. I, I- like first, let's like, what's the distinction between those three fields, and how do they overlap? And I don't know, just just help us better understand these fields for somebody who has only taken biology in high school, maybe. So,
1: studying of microorganisms had been done for for many hundreds of years, um, and that was at a time where we could see bacteria, but we or microbes, but we couldn't necessarily see immune cells. We just didn't know anything about them.
0: We could see them under a microscope. Okay. Yeah. Is that why they call it microbiology? Because you study it under a microscope?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, micro exactly. So micro, obviously, is, is the study of microorganisms. Ah, uh, okay. Done, right? And so what was derived from that was immunology. Because cells are microscopic. Like, immune cells are microscopic. Um, and just studying those ones, you, now you come into, okay, we have these microorganisms. Some of them make us sick. Some of them don't make us sick. The ones that do make us sick, what happens when they, like, how do they actually do that? And so that's how the field of immunology came about.
0: Okay, so that's like kind of studying not only what, I guess, what am I trying to say? What makes us sick? I'm trying to find the distinction between immunology and like, like what a doctor does or like, you know, somebody who studies the human body, the diseases that affect the human body, or are they the same thing?
1: Yeah. So depends on your idea of a doctor. Okay. So there, what I'm going to school for isn't a medical doctor, it's it's just a PhD, which means that I'm pretty much primarily focused on research. A medical doctor is a clinician also. So they see patients, they deal with people, but at the same time, they can also do research. Mm -hmm. Um, those people like doctor, like medical doctors and PhDs can study whatever they want to, whatever they specialize in. Um, there is no real distinction. Like I know tons of medical doctors that are really big into the immunology field.
0: Okay. Okay. So there is crossover. There, there. is
1: definitely crossover. Okay. Um.
0: But. But the thing. thing the, the thing, thing is, is, for you, you will be, be a doctor, doctor just not. I will, Yeah. Med- so
1: medical doctors are. They can. They can be scientists, but they also treat patients. Okay.
0: okay. Would you consider a medical doctor who doesn't do research a scientist? Good question. I don't know.
1: I guess so. I
0: mean. I feel like it's I have a, the bias that a scientist has I've never research. thought about that before. Yeah. You know? I, I'd love to know what you guys think uh, out there in the audience. Does a medical doctor who does not do research, is he considered a scientist? Let us know in the comments if there is comment. No. Where, where do they comment on the podcast? I, I don't on know. On iTunes.
1: On iTunes? Yeah. <laughs> comment on iTunes or send us a
0: tweet at the 4501 podcast on our Twitter handle. That's right, and we do have uh, a Facebook now. We do. Oh, yes, we do. That'll be linked in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, um, okay.
0: So, yeah. So, I, I don't
1: know. That's a good question. I've never mm. thought about that. Yeah, well. I would say that if you're a medical doctor, well, some of them don't. I will tell you this. Like, a lot of some of the medical doctors I've talked to just don't like research.
0: Oh, yeah, I can see that. Just like you don't like the, the I don't yeah, say The I'm difference different.
1: is I'm not trained to treat patients. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, different strokes for different folks. That's okay, but um, yeah, thank you for the distinction between microbiology, biology, and immunology. That really helps at least for me clarify the difference between the three fields, i guess subfields
1: yeah and, and I would say that microbiology and immunology are very highly intertwined
0: yeah that, just a... by just by you
1: have pathogenic microbes, hmm you know,
0: I don't know what that is, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> like you like like you've heard of Ebola before, right, okay. Ebola virus or. Yeah. Or even the flu. Like the flu is a pathogenic microbe.
0: Pathogenic microbes. Yeah. So stuff that make you sick, make you sick. Yeah. Okay. The fancy way of saying stuff that makes you sick. <laughs> <laughs> Diseases. Yeah. So yeah, pretty much. Okay. That makes sense. Well, um, that's a good overview. Let's go in and talk about actually like the day in the life of a biology PhD student, which is the title of this podcast episode, I want to get a better feel about like the classes that you're taking. Um, I think you said you had to do a little bit of work as a grad assistant. You're obviously doing research, so you're working in a lab, and uh, potentially talk about a thesis that you're going to be working on. So um, I think let's just start with classes. Like what are the requirements? What, how many classes do you have to take to get your PhD? So, before
1: we start, we should say that every university is different. Okay. And then, so every university has a different structure for their PhDs. Um, Basically, for for what I have to do at Georgetown, it's 15 credits, uh, so 15 credit hours, I think. And um, basically, that equates to about a year or a year and a half of school, of classwork for your first year, or your first two years, essentially and then um, after that you're free to do research for the most part full-time other universities are different some of them don't really have a set 15 credit some of them will do what we call modules which means that you take like 10 week uh, module classes so like 10 weeks might be on genetics the next 10 weeks might be on cells or something like that and it just kind of i think a lot of universities are going towards that now as opposed to just taking one class per semester all in this. I think the modular type of learning environment is starting to, to become more prevalent among universities. Because it's just one of those things where you don't get bored as often. It's not just the same thing all the time.
0: Are, there, are these module classes overlapping? Do they go concurrently?
1: uh no so well they could be it depends on the class so like the overall theme might be let's say microbiology uh-huh. but the first 10 weeks might be just bacteria and the next 10 weeks might just be viruses and the next 10 weeks after that might just be um uh, fungus or something like
0: yeah, that. yeah okay i see i see what what's uh do you know a school that does that
1: i think uh so when i entered at university of alabama birmingham they did that
0: oh, okay yeah and it's not 10
1: weeks, it's like a lot shorter than that it's not sure. 10 weeks is like that's already half the year it's not like that
0: yeah because a regular semester it's like it's, weeks. it's
1: more or less like two or three weeks yeah
0: oh wow so they're really
1: quick They're really quick and, and i mean it works though um people from what i talked to who went through these mod systems are really they don't feel like they're terribly um bored if that makes any sense
0: yeah I, you couldn't get bored after two two or three weeks that would be ridiculous okay well very good um now, this is just, like, another personal question. I know I know you go to Georgetown, like, you physically commute from Baltimore to Georgetown every day or, you know, every few days. Do you do any type of online classes, t- or could you potentially do any type of online classes as a Ph.D. student?
1: Yeah, so I think you definitely could do online courses as a Ph.D. student. But what I think it comes down to is if your university actually has the ability to do so. One thing is that I don't think Georgetown does, frankly. Uh, What we do primarily there is um, just normal classwork. But I think for a PhD program in general, uh, at least for biology, is that you don't wanna do as much classwork as you have during undergrad. Your main focus as a biology PhD student is research. So that's why you have the year, year and a half of classes, and then the next three and a half, four and a half years are going to be research dedicated.
0: Oh, wow. So you're doing much, much more research than classwork. Yeah. In... And,
1: and, but this is, I don't know what like, the public
0: health field
1: or, or different field. Right, or like, right. You know? I, I don't know if this is just particular to uh, biology.
0: Right. Yeah. It could be different. Who knows? We'll have to look into that in the future. Maybe we'll interview a a different science person on here and see what their experience is with PhD. We could. Yeah. You know anybody? Yeah, I I do. We'll get them on here. Well, I'll try. Line them up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before we get into your role as a grad assistant, I have one more question about classes as a PhD student. I'm really curious how many other people are going to class or through how many other people are going to graduate the same time as you? Um, is it like a couple or like 20 or 50, you know, how many people are?
1: Yeah. So basically for, for PhD classes, you don't typically get 30 people. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at Georgetown, it's a little difficult because you actually have master students within your classes with you. It, that's just the structure of, of Georgetown. It's not the greatest learning environment, to be honest. Um, but there aren't PhD only classes. You usually it, they're graduate classes. so there's PhDs and master students in them. Within your program, you may have like a certain class to take. So for us we, we, we have like two mandatory classes we have to take within our program. So every class is different in terms of number size, but for ours we had like eight or nine people. So it was just the class of, or the, the eight of us taking the same class the, like the first year.
0: And are those all graduate students? Or I'm sorry, are those all PhD? students? Yeah, they're all PhD students okay. within within my
1: program. Okay, and that that was a required course. And, and every, again, every school is different. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. for the most part, if they're doing it right, they usually have some sort of course that all the PhD students take together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. Just again, yeah. before we move on, how yeah. did that compare to your? How did that compare to your master's degree at Towson? Was it a similar? number of people in your classes or
1: yeah so this is getting to a different topic but basically class sizes are dependent on kind of two things the spots available and also the amount of money they have which um varies from year to year Mm -hmm. so it depends on how many outgoing phd students they have and also how much money they have available and so i was lucky because all for the most part all science phds get paid to go to school. So I don't pay, pay any tuition. I don't pay any textbooks or fees or anything like that. Everything is covered under my kind of PhD agreement with Georgetown university. And so that means that they, the, the biology department has an excess number of money they were able to allocate for the PhD students. So that limits the number of spots they can take in.
0: Okay. So you're not only getting your tuition paid for and your books and all that stuff, but you actually get some type of salary. Yes, so I
1: get a stipend, a yearly stipend. It's one of the more competitive ones within uh, the science field from what I've seen, uh, which I'm lucky. But it's still, I mean, it's minuscule, but still
0: livable. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I think a lot of people have, well, I have the misconception that if you do go to school, especially for a master's, but even more so for a PhD, that you're going to be forking out the money to pay for that. But that's not necessarily the case, especially in in your case.
1: Yeah, so again, it depends on... Where you go and how much money they have. Yeah, but like science, so that's for sciences. I know for like history or like humanities, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, you may have to do more teaching and stuff like that. I mean, it, but I guess it, this goes back to the extracurriculars that you actually have, have to do as a PhD student, right? And so the way you're funded primarily through PhDs or for PhDs is you have either have a teaching fellowship or you have a research fellowship. And so for Georgetown, there is a teaching requirement. I think we're gonna to get to this next, but basically the, for Georgetown, you have two mandatory semesters of teaching where you have to be a teaching fellow for a particular class. And what that means is basically, um, you sit in on classes if you have to, or you actually instruct undergraduates for a particular class. And so you're actually a teacher um, teaching these kids whatever or helping out doing whatever the the professor of the class wants you to do.
0: Yeah, so you, you called it a fellow? Teaching fellowship. Teaching fellow. Some
1: people also call them teaching assistantships. There's different criteria, but they're all the same thing, essentially. And so if you're teaching fellow, usually the schools or the universities are paying for you to be those, and that's how you get your tuition covered, and that's how you get your stipends. Mm,
0: right, right. Okay. Yeah, and, and I know this is a pretty... This is a pretty broad question, but how was your experience as a teaching fellow? Did you enjoy that? Did you get along with the students? How was it, like, grading papers, all that stuff?
1: Yeah, so that within a school, it varies, especially a school like Georgetown. Um, Some classes uh, for TFs are much more difficult than other classes. So I taught immunology because I'm an immunology-focused research person, um, and basically I had to teach about 40 kids, 40 kids. Um, It wasn't too terrible because it was just a a seminar. So basically we meet once a week and we just discuss papers that were very impactful to the entire field of immunology. So it wasn't that bad. Grading wasn't that bad. But I know people, fellow grad students that are teaching introductory level classes like biochemistry or intro to science. They call them foundations of science or something like that. Um, And those guys are, committing a lot more time to teaching essentially. And so one of the drawbacks about having a TF is it's a time suck. That's what it is. Like if you're, if your primary focus is research and you have to dedicate probably eight to 20 hours a week for teaching, assume there's a 40 week teaching schedule or a 40 week, 40 hour work week, which there isn't for science, mm. um, that only leaves 20 hours for science, which isn't a lot. So, um, One of the aspects to get around that is to go into a lab that has what we call research fellowships available. Now, the difference between a TF and RF is basically the funding mechanism. If you go into a lab that has research money, I like money funded from the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Health or even um, Department of Defense or something like that. Mm -hmm. if If they have external funding sources, usually they have money allocated for grad students to to pay for their stipends and their salary okay. or, or stipend, their salary and stipends yeah without having without having to teach to, yeah. without having that requirement to teach okay. so the teaching fellow teaches the research fellow does research and so if you're going to scientists the one you want to go for is a research fellowship unless but this also goes back to the idea of what you want to do further along in
0: your career right 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 because if you do want to teach that would be an excellent experience exactly yeah. yeah so so there are benefits to actually actually having a teaching fellowship. Mm -hmm. makes sense let's move on over into your lab yeah i want to talk about some of the specific projects that you worked on i know we touched on that a little bit at during your time at loyola Mm -hmm. but how about at towson or georgetown even better since you're doing that currently um what is some of the research projects that you have worked on
1: so that that loyola project was one project Right. So there's the first one I've done, which actually is one of the most interesting ones because uh, but it wasn't the most impactful. So that's the difference. The first research project I ever got started on was in a micro microbial ecology lab. And basically what that means is microbial ecology is the study of kind of bacterial communities. And so um, the biggest bacterial community you can think of, can you name it? Your gut? Your gut is definitely a bacterial community, yes, but that's not the one people think of the first. Okay. What do you, do you have an idea?
0: Is it something in the human body? It is. Um, You deal with it every day. Every day.
1: Your mouth. Yes. What part of your mouth?
0: Your tongue.
1: No, could be. What in your mouth that you have to scrub off every night? Plaque. Plaque, exactly. So plaque is actually a bunch of microbes just sticking together, and they're feeding off all the food uv in throughout the day Mm -hmm. so we call those biofilms
0: biofilms biofilms yeah not like the movie
1: Uh, is there a movie called
0: biofilms (laughs) i just play on oh like biofilms yeah
1: yeah no so so those are called biofilms um and the reason why they're so bad for you is because they'll just build up over time you know plaque build up over time Mm -hmm. and they'll start to eat away your teeth eventually if you don't treat them that's how you get cavities right and so those biofilms are really bad they're they're not only found in your teeth or they're found in catheters uh, for patients mm. in hospitals you also find them in industry so if you have a bunch of pipes lying around eventually over time bacterial biofilms will form up within those pipes and reduce the efficiency of those pipes mm-hmm. so they're big they're a big problem everywhere and so basically what i was doing in this lab was we were looking at this particular microbe called uh, it's called della okay but it was essentially a parasitic uh bacteria or predaceous bacteria, depends on what your definition is.
0: So it's going to make you sick?
1: No. So th- it was a non-pathogenic bacteria.
0: But basically what it
1: did was it, it, it essentially would run, like ram into a, uh, another ba- bacteria. So if you have like one bacteria, it would literally swim into another bacteria, like just like run into it. And it's actually able to embed itself within that bacteria that it hit and replicate with inside of it
0: sounds so like futuristic well it sounds like a virus right Uh, yeah yeah because you take over the host cell and all exactly so
1: so viruses are basically a different set of microbes that will actually invade your uh your human cells it'll replicate with inside those human cells and then explode and releases new viral particles that's the same exact way this delverbrio bacteria works but it's not a virus it's a bacteria Mm -hmm. but in any case what we were trying to do for that project was to look at uh, Delveribro and see if it was able To actually degrade these bacterial biofilms
0: Okay so you're going to use it To your advantage to like reduce Plaque essentially Exactly
1: I mean that's not the, that, that's not the real scenario But yes for, for emphasis And example yes that's exactly <laughs> right So like you could use you could just put Delveribro in your mouth like for like 30 seconds and it would degrade your bacteria Like the bacterial biofilms within your mouth Oh cool yeah. but More realistically it would be like industrial type of ordeals
0: for the pipes. okay okay was it um a successful outcome of the project so yeah i mean
1: the base it was a first project so it was very rudimentary data but yes you can use delirida to decrease bacterial biofilm
0: architecture okay. um it...
1: and actually there was an article in npr that i just sent my research advisor who i worked in this lab doing this i just sent him a new uh like npr just had a project about like report about this it was pretty pretty funny
0: Oh wow, that's yeah. good. Do you, now, my understanding with like science and like especially research is like you can't just have one single research project. You know, go out to like the consumer industry. You have to have it like repeat it multiple times. Yeah. So, is there any like overlap between you and that article that you sent out, or?
1: So the idea itself is probably the same, but the mechanism by which we do it is different. Mm-hmm. And that's all. That's just based on the um ability of the lab to actually get like do more expensive projects like in assays and stuff like that.
0: Okay. That I don't want to get too far off topic here, but um this is something that I'm always thinking about, well not always thinking about, but something that has crossed my mind in the past, and that is is there cross pollination between different universities and different like institutions about knowledge sharing and you know you don't want to reinvent the wheel or you know something like that like how how does that look or how does that work is it online or do you physically meet up with people
1: yeah so i would say that science today is increasingly interdisciplinary so it's increasingly collaborative between labs and whether that be sharing ideas or sharing results or sharing uh, materials you need to be able to be able, you need to be able to do that in the modern day science era. If you're working by yourself, you're never gonna survive as a lab. So you have to be able to count on different people. Now, if you go into industry and I'm not quite sure if this is uh, applicable to all the big drug or pharmaceutical companies, that's what industry means. Usually it's more shelter. You're not able to collaborate with as much different people as you want to, um, or share ideas because you do have a bottom line there. You have, uh you need to be able to produce a result which gets put out to market, which the company needs to monetize. So there is not as much collaboration there. They may be within the company, but outside of the company, there's probably nothing.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because they're they're working for a profit and you guys are working off grant money.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so you can get grant money from drug companies, but obviously um, you could have an agenda there. Right, uh, yeah. Right, it's not as biased as whether it's not as biased if you got money from like the government or like the national science foundation or the national institute of health.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, like you said, they have an agenda, a hidden agenda potentially. Yeah. But I mean, they
1: can, you can get money from them, but you need to be explicit and you need to be able to tell the people who reading this data that yes, I was funded through the shrunk company and they had zero input into this data analysis.
0: Yeah, I hear about that from time to time in the news. Like, I I can't think of, I think like actually a specific example is maybe like Coca-Cola funding some research about sugar to a university saying that it's not like that bad for you or something along those lines oh really I didn't yeah know that. yeah i could be wrong about that but I, I watched a netflix documentary about um sugar like the harmful effects of sugar on the human body and that might have been said in that at some point
1: no yeah sugar is pretty bad for you um if you've so in the lab we make our own media basically it's just a a solution that enables our cells to grow mm-hmm. um but part of the Part of adding a part of the ingredients list to make our media is uh, glucose, which is sugar. Uh-huh. And just weighing out a gram of glucose is insane. Like it's 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 a lot. Yeah. And if you look on a bottle, 27 grams of sugar, is like a lot. Like it makes you realize how much sugar is actually in soda. Yeah. Because you you can't see it, right? You can't see it. And so actually having that visual representation of how much 27 grams or 28 grams of sugar actually is, is incredible.
0: We should dedicate a whole episode to this topic. I would love to do do nutrition.
1: Yeah. I'm not a nutritionist, but we can, we can figure that out later on. Let's do it. Okay.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, let's move along to the last aspect that at least I'm familiar with as a PhD student. And that is the thesis that you have to write in order to, I guess, graduate and get your degree. Um, Have you started doing your thesis? Yeah, so I have started my thesis
1: project. It's actually um, uh, a lot of years worth of stuff. And so the culmination is what you call a dissertation project for for a PhD at least. And so the general steps to get to completion of your thesis project is first, um, A, you have have a qualifying exam. Usually that's your first year. to say I'm qualified to be, in this PhD program.
0: And you've done that at this point?
1: I'm done with that. Okay. The third year, um, you usually have what we call a comprehensive exam. And so that is basically your dissertation proposal. So this is what I will be doing for my dissertation. This is why it's novel. Um, This is what I think is going to happen. These are the experiments I plan on doing. And these are the kind of answers I hope to to address and the results I expect. Mm -hmm. So that's the comprehensive exam um that third year and then at the end once you actually have um a story with your project as we like to say you'll actually defend your dissertation and that's usually four or five or six years when your project's over with
0: from the beginning not an additional okay
1: yeah that's so your entire phd career on average is five years
0: five years okay so you're you're you've put in four So far, like three and a half,
1: four, I don't really know.
0: (laughs) It all blurs together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, But I think like we mentioned before, the goal is end of next year to be done. Hopefully.
1: Yeah, I I think so. I think it's doable. Um, That's the timeline. One thing about grad school, and this is kind of just a a personal anecdote that I've learned is that uh, you need to be self-motivated and you need to have a clear set of goals and ideas of what you want to
0: accomplish. Oh yeah, that that I could definitely see that being the case. Yeah, because otherwise you're, I don't know, nobody's gonna like be your parent while you're no, there. No, yeah, like.
1: exactly. Yeah,
0: so um, it's all about changing your
1: mindset. So the first three years is like, what do I have to do to be stay in grad school? Because they can kick you out. It's like the co- qualifying exam. If you don't pass, you get kicked out. Comprehensive exam. If you don't pass, you get kicked out with a masters. So the the the, the mindset has to switch once you pass your comprehensive exam to what I have to do to stay here to what I have to do to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so that's the transition that that I'm kind of in right now.
0: Have you seen anybody drop off through your three and a half, four years?
1: No, but there are stories from my program and all programs that kids sometimes will, will just, they'll say grad school is not for
0: them. Yeah. Yeah, it's better to find that out earlier than later. yeah. You don't want
1: to waste five years of your life knowing that you just don't want to do grad school. Anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah, makes sense. Um, well, good luck with your thesis, and I, I wish you all the best with your research projects, and I hope they all turn out the way you want them to, and yeah. you pass with flying colors. Me too. I hope so. That's that's uh, we're all we're all going to be rooting for you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, once you do get your your Ph.D. degree. What are your plans for after that? Like, I I could see you going in any number of directions, but I'm sure you have something in mind for what you want to do after.
1: Yeah, so a PhD... Oh, God, (laughs) (laughs) I just We should keep this in. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should. Okay. Yeah, for a PhD um, student, okay, so once you have your PhD, there are kind of three areas that you can go into. The first one is academia, which means that you basically are a research scientist or professor at a university so if you went to college all those teachers who's taught you are, are PhD people usually who went to academia um, if you go to a university a lot of hospitals if you have a research lab at a hospital that's considered academia too and so basically if you work at a university or a school teaching or doing research that is that considered academia the second Avenue is what we talked about a little bit earlier or brought up is industry so industry is pharmaceutical companies, um, science companies. Um, I think Nick probably works in industry. Would Nick consider be considered in industry? Uh, well, f- and then for those, we will be we'll probably be interviewing Nick in the next couple weeks, right?
0: Uh, not next week, but the week after. Okay.
1: So Nick works at um, what's it, Bios. If you if you haven't seen Tony's vlog already, go watch it. We'll drop the link in the description below or wherever. Show notes. Show notes. Yeah, we will <laughs> we will drop the link in the show notes. And can you explain what BIOS is?
0: Yeah, BIOS stands for Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences. Um, I don't know. They do they do all research there, and they're funded through grants. But we'll get into that when we talk to Nick. He'll he'll confirm that or not. But to me, that seems like it would be more academia. Academia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. I guess it, for industry is more for like if you think of for profit, right? Sure. So sure. drug companies.
0: What what's the name of a drug company that somebody our audience would know?
1: Oh jeez, uh, like um, there's like million like Amgen. Never heard of it. Bristol Myers or oh, I've heard of them. Um, there's a Pfizer.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure, um, okay,
1: yeah. Those are a couple of drug company drug companies, <laughs> drug companies. Um, but you also have these big like research companies like Thermo Fisher or VWR, or um, I forget if Sigma's owned by Fisher, or Therma uh, Therm- I think Sigma's by itself. But th- those are just like companies that make science products as opposed to just drugs.
0: What, what is an example of a science product?
1: If you were going into uh, a hospital, okay, mm-hmm. and you wanted to get like a rapid diagnostic test, those tests have to be produced by someone. And so those normally are the drug, uh, not the drug companies, but the science companies that I'm talking
0: about. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, drug companies, obviously, like the ones I talked about before, make the drugs that you take. And so research there is involved with uh, development, necessarily. So you take a compound, you screen the compound against different organisms, if it's like an antibiotic or something, and you see how, like, how effective it is in treating that bacteria or pathogen or microbe. Um, and then you bring that to, to human trials and stuff like that. And you bring it to market. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's kind of what, we think, what I think about with regards to industry. Uh-huh. In the last one, going back to what, to, what, what, what can you do with a PhD, essentially. Right. Um, what you can do with a PhD is go into policymaking. And people don't think about this primarily. And I never thought about this when I was in uh, an undergrad. No one really brought this idea to me is that science is very, very, very political, right?
0: Yeah, certain topics especially. There was just a
1: report um, that the the NIH stopped their HIV funding because they were using fetal tissue samples. So it's very politicized. And so if you think about it, you have to have rules in place. So who do make those rules? Well, they're science policymakers. So you can go into science policy where you actually don't have a lab bench. You don't do research. You do basically paperwork and you push papers.
0: So that's what you're going to go for. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, 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 I, I'm done pushing papers. I'm tired. I mean, if you go into industry and academia, there is a level of paper pushing that you must go through, but at the same time, um, you'll push a lot of papers when you're, um, in policy.
0: Yeah, the yeah, by definition that sounds like what it would be. Yeah, so So, so anyway, what would you choose? Like you're not gonna do the policy making, would you do if you have a choice? Um, industry or academia?
1: Yeah, so I think I'm gonna go into academia. Um Oh wow. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of policymakers. Um, and it's not the most interesting thing that I like. Um and at the same time I've gone into uh, where I've seen uh, industry people, that's agency just industry? that's industry or policy?
0: You talk to policy people? I've
1: talked to policy people. I've talked to industry people, and I don't like them. That works. Okay. So I, academia, it's not, it's not a process of elimination, right? If, um, if I don't like these other two, then I have to go on this one. I, I like academia. I like the idea of opening up my own lab somewhere um, and just doing what those academics actually do.
0: And that would include not only the research part but the teaching part as well? Yeah,
1: I think I I enjoy teaching even though despite it's a huge time suck. But um, it's fun. Like those interacting with the undergrads are really interesting because they bring up new ideas that you never would have really thought of. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're wrong. Most of the time they're wrong. (laughs) But some of them do like actually have somewhat legitimate ideas and questions. And um, it doesn't necessarily push my work forward but it does give me a little bit of an inspiration to like say like oh or think about it in a different way think about your in your research in a different way because i will say that if you get bogged down in one project and if you have this one tracked mindset your research project isn't going to be very good
0: yeah that's that's awesome to have that fresh mindset from the younger generation that's really useful and plus they can always help you out in the lab no that's exactly right well, we're running out of time here, and
1: I think... So, Tony, I have a question for you, now that this, uh, you've learned a little bit about the PhD science lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you ready for it? Yep.
1: Okay. So, my question is, how many Amish people do you know of
0: participating in this lifestyle? I, so, I don't know any Amish people. Just put that for the record, period. So, I'll have to say zero. Well, Okay. Are you sure? Because you're from the Amish community, so. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm not,
1: though. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Well, um, that's it for this podcast. We're running short on time. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, And we'll see you next time. See you guys. And thanks for listening to this episode. Please follow us on Twitter at the 4501 podcast to keep up with the latest news and events. If you have any suggestions for episodes or would like to contact us, shoot us an email at the 4501podcast at gmail.com.